Hello and welcome to Build Momentum, a show where we explore thought leadership and education. I'm Sarah Williamson, the founder of SWPR Group. And I'm Katie Lash, the director of the East Central Educational Service Center. Together, we explore how to leverage key partners, your constituencies, and the media to authentically impact your organizations and the leaders who champion them. We can't wait to get started, so let's dive into today's show. Okay, welcome. It's so great to have you on the show today, John Watson. You're one of my favorite people in EdTech, founder of Evergreen Education Group, the Digital Learning Council, and the Digital Learning Annual Conference. So great to have you on the show today. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Sarah. Yes. Katie, you want to take it away? I do. I do. I'm so excited to officially meet John today because last year I had the opportunity to attend DLAC, talk on a panel, but we get to meet him here today. So tell me more though, John, since I don't know you well, tell us about your background and how you got into this space. I got into this space for a couple of reasons. One is I had been working for a lot of years in experiential education, other aspects of non-traditional education. The other piece too is, I don't know if you two know Julie Young, the founder of Florida Virtual School and really one of the foundational people in our space. Julie once said to me, I think people in our space either loved or hated school. And by our space, meaning online learning, innovative schools, that sort of thing. And Julie put herself firmly in the love school. I put myself firmly in the hated school category. And when I talk to students now who are in online schools, hybrid schools, alt-ed, independent study in California. I just hear echoes of myself, students who are myself from a long time ago. These are students who are looking for different options that they're not getting out of traditional schools and different opportunities, things that excite them, engage them. And those are the folks that we get at the Digital Learning Annual Conference, where we're organized around online hybrid blended learning. But what that really means is how to use those tools to deliver different approaches to meet needs for really the full range of students. Yeah, I think I didn't love school either. I don't know if I hated it, but I definitely did not love it. So totally get you there. I love that analogy. Okay, so John, you know, our show is all about thought leadership. And I love how I've heard you talk about thought leadership before, particularly as it relates to DLAC. Because it's an interesting balance of how you have to bring on ed tech vendors and you have partners and you have sponsors, but then you also have all these ed tech companies who are trying to present and you have to balance that between district administrators and educators who are presenting as well. So tell me about how you think about thought leadership, particularly when it comes to that conference and then in the broader industry as well. We see both DLAC and the Digital Learning Collaborative as the communities that have the conversations about what's happening in these different elements of digital learning. And what it means to be a community to us is sharing ideas, sharing best practices, being honest and transparent about what's not gone well, being vulnerable, all those elements. And I think those are the elements that are especially important for the vendors, for the providers, being part of the conversation instead of trying to drive the conversation, being transparent about what's going well and what's not going well. If I'm in a conversation with a provider and they're basically saying, oh yeah, we can do that and we can do that and we can do that, we can do that and that and that and that and that. that." Like, yeah, you just convinced me you probably don't do anything well. Yep. I totally agree with that. Yeah. The conversations that I think resonate really, really well 
especially from the provider standpoint, starts with here's the ways that we've identified an issue that somebody in that education value chain is having, whether it's teachers, administrators, when you think about student support, student engagement, et cetera. We've identified this problem. Here's how we're trying to address it through a product or a service. And I think it was your podcast a week or two ago that where one of you said, please don't tell me you're partnering with us anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that word, John? It drives me bonkers. And you, I, I think it was Katie. As I, <laughs> Oh yeah, it's Katie. I think I was the moment when I decided I had to send this around because the way you put it just nailed it for me, which is, hey, we might get there, but that's not the starting point. And you know, <laughs> when I have somebody come to me and say, hey, we want to partner, I'm like, great. I don't write checks to partners, right? <laughs> that's a different category. Right. And so I think the starting point is, first of all, Let's just be clear about what we're doing. You know, I think, again, that whole partnership thing, that terminology is, it's a way of trying to hide the relationship, hide the true elements of what that vendor, customer slash client relationship is. And I feel like, let's just be honest about this. And, and yeah, we might get to the point where we're partners because we're exploring some issues together. We're adding to what we might be offering as an organization. but. That's not the starting point. I'm just quoting Katie here, by the way. I know. Katie, <laughs> come on. Yeah, it's so funny that you say that. I actually noticed, I mean, we don't pre-script these all the way, these podcasts, of course, but like we always have some prompting questions. And I noticed that Sarah used the word partners on one of these questions. She can't help herself. <laughs> what? Did you notice that? It's coming no. up later. Yeah, it's coming up later as like a thought oh for thing Thanks here. Thanks for so calling I, me out, Katie. Appreciate I mean, it. I was going to call it out for sure later, but since John <laughs> went there, then like we're, yes, I love that. So yeah, I think that that's been the very first thing. One of the very first things I said to Sarah was that there are some companies that I would say we're partners, but not the breadth of them that say so. That doesn't happen the first day. Yeah. You get there. Katie, how do you feel about companies that say we don't sell products, we sell solutions? Oh, that one's, again, probably catchy for the first 30 who said it. And then now we're past it. So yeah, I mean, again, there's got to be a different way. Or the question is, do companies not know that others are saying the same thing? Like that really might be the root issue here because they're not all being sold to by one another. So maybe they don't know that everyone's wearing it out. I don't know. I, I think you could be onto something there. Yeah. One of the things I find myself routinely saying to our consulting clients who are often DLAC sponsors and digital learning collaborative members is if you're not looking at the websites, the materials of all the organizations that you consider yourself competitors with and differentiating what you're saying versus what they're saying, then you need to rethink just like foundationally what you're doing. Because just like you said, Katie, it's like there's too many that are saying the same things and that becomes a problem. Yeah. Okay. So back to the DLAC question real quick. So when you are reviewing these hordes of proposals, I just want to get into this for a minute because I am on the program committee and it's fascinating seeing all of these submissions and so many companies that are talking about what they offer and they've like sharing their solution within the description and within the content of the panels. And almost in every episode, I'm like, instead of thinking about yourself, take a step back and think about the value you can provide to your audience. And it's not about you as a product or solution. And 
What do you think about that, Don? The sessions at DLAC, and by the way, this is probably true of all sorts of other things they could probably be doing as well. But since we have control over the sessions at DLAC, I can put it in those terms. We encourage companies to talk about the districts that they are working with to solve a problem for students or for teachers, you know, if it's something like mm-hmm. PD, let's say. What's the problem that your client solved using your product, service, expertise, whatever? Yeah. And let them tell the story. And then you as the provider are clearly there. Because by the way, at the end of the day, if you're a company presenting, sponsoring, et cetera, at DLAC, you're there to get some leads out of it. And we are 100% supportive of that. Just to be clear, I know we're being, I'm being a little snarky at times here, but bottom line is the providers are not just a critical part of the overall digital learning system. They are a fundamental part that, because there is literally nobody is running a K-12 online blended or hybrid program without using some online provider. That's exactly zero. That's a good point. And so everybody's using something. And so there are stories to tell. And I understand that if a company's coming to D, like they need exposure, they need leads, they need all these things. So I'm not saying, look, don't show up. I'm saying, yeah, be on the stage, be on the panel, let the client or clients lead. And then you chime in and add some elements of what it is about your company that's doing this really, really well. I was just running a webinar with a client and there's in particular a woman with this client who did this incredibly well. We had three school people. They would all talk. And then every so often, the woman from this company would just add a few words about, yeah, and, and here's how we think about that and how we approach it. It was just perfect. And because I think it's a less is more kind of situation, right? She's impressing people because she doesn't feel the need to talk a lot. She's just saying the right things that are going to resonate with the audience. Oh, yeah. Love it. By the way, Katie is also speaking at DLAC again this coming year. Fantastic. On the rural schools panel. Excellent. I have a lot of rural schools that I serve. Yeah. But I love, I mean, John, I think what you're saying goes back to like, we all know what we're doing there, right? Like we're going to these conferences to buy something or to learn about something new. And there's going to be people there that are trying to sell. And we're all on the same page that that's like, a goal, but like this can be artfully done that like everyone wins, like everyone leaves feeling like their needs are met. So I completely agree with you. Let's go find examples of people who are doing it really well. And then let's like, we can write case studies about them. How does that sound? I don't know. Agreed. Totally agree. (laughs) Question here. So you're looking at all of these submissions. What themes and trends are you seeing right now? What do people want to talk about? Is there anything that surprises you? A few of the themes, first of all, there's the continuing shift from emergency remote learning to longer term online and hybrid and blended learning. And so we're seeing the districts that may have been starting their program for the first time during the pandemic, and now they want to grow it. They may have expanded it during the pandemic. They're learning those lessons. So I'd say that's a major one. An offshoot of that is significantly increased interest in elementary digital learning. Because for a lot of folks, online and hybrid meant high school, maybe a little bit of middle school. When you think about elementary, there's a different set of student interests, use cases, essentially. And they really are quite different. We were talking a fair bit about the idea that people will generally talk about K-12 education like it's one thing. And I do that all the time, too. But that's lumping together a high school junior and a third grader. And they're clearly experiencing everything about the world differently, right? Including 
how they're experiencing instruction and learning and therefore how we think about delivering different types of instruction to students of very different grade levels has to be very different. And that carries over into the digital learning realm as well. So that's another one. The third one I'd say is around policy and the extent to which there are still quite a few states that have policies that are just restrictive in one way or another. And it feels like, again, coming out of the pandemic, essentially everybody experienced some form of emergency remote learning. A fair number of those folks, students, parents, teachers are interested in extending that, but into different innovative forms of hybrid and online learning. There's still entirely too many states that are putting up either barriers or what I tend to think of as sand in the gears. It's like, they're not saying you can't do that. They're just going to make it hard every step of the way. Oh, John, we have to talk offline. I have some projects that I want to pick your brain about because we're facing some of that with some of the districts that we're trying to do some pretty creative things. And I do have to say we have like amazing support from our Department of Ed, but you're so right. We have some policy pieces that we need to take a look at. We have some, yes, you might have people I need to know. But yeah, I love that you said that. And the elementary conversation is prime in my area too right now. But like, there's an avenue to do that on purpose instead of the emergency, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, the emergency does not work. I mean, I have three elementary students and that plopping kids in front of a screen, no thanks. That's not going to solve any problems. We got to get creative with them. Actually, though, I have to say my girls, they're on fall break right now and they're e-learning earlier today. They were so good at it. And I think honestly, in a weird way, right, the emergency situation made us like take a deep look at what we would do when we do it on purpose. <laughs> yeah. So like, it's really, girls had a really interesting experience today. They were doing a good job. And I'm so impressed by how independent that they can. So I loved it. Okay, so John, you kind of already went here, but I'm so curious, other than the words partners, or we don't sell solutions, what are some other things that made you so intrigued by that? by that podcast? What made you send it on? Your discussion about the volume of emails you get, because I don't get the volume that you're talking about, but I get a ton of these, right? Still. And I'm sure you're seeing this. There's all these emails that are coming in now that appear to be personal. So it's clear they're not coming through an email program, which means also that you don't have a simple unsubscribe option. I'm not talking about like Nigerian Prince spam kind of stuff. I'm talking about the big thing for us is I'll get multiple emails a day offering to sell me lists of K-12 administrators. And the flip side of that is we're trying to break through and we're trying to get out to people and figure out, okay, how do we get somebody to notice us? And of course, on one, in one sense, you could say, well, John, that's what everybody is trying to do, right? But the difference, because we're operating, we think of ourselves in the online and hybrid niche within ed tech, which is in a niche of education. So we're so small that I firmly believe that we are sending out a very high percentage of emails that people actually want to get if they'll notice them, right? And it drives me crazy when people essentially say, oh, I just found out about DLAC. And I'll be like, I know we've been emailing you for a while now. And I don't mean it's driving me crazy in terms of, I'm not annoyed at them. I'm annoyed at the world that's created this scenario where it becomes incredibly difficult to share what is truly valuable information. And so we're 
constantly thinking about that volume. And you were talking a lot about that, Katie. It didn't give me a solution. I know. I wish we had one. I wish we had one. It was affirming. John, I think it sounds like you need some thought leadership. Can I share one thing? I wrote an email to somebody a few months ago. It was somebody I didn't know, but I had some sort of connection to. I don't remember why exactly, but it was like a three or four paragraph email. And it was about, hey, here's what we're doing at DLAG and the collaborative and thought you might be interested. And I sprinkled real references throughout. You know, I don't know what they were. I can't remember offhand, but they were real things like, hey, here's some people we've worked with. You probably know. Here's some programs. Here's some things that you're doing. That, and it was like a month later, I got a response and it was, hey, I had to read this three times before it, I was convinced that this was a real email. And again, I wasn't angry at her. I was so annoyed. At, like, I probably spent 20 minutes crafting that email. And you know that's a non-trivial amount of time for a single email. And how do we break through? And uh, it, it drives me crazy. She read it three times. I think that's a win. <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Oh, and then she wrote back. But it's like, wait, what else? I don't know. Maybe the uh, AI-generated emails are getting better than I realize now, such that they yeah. can fake that. I don't know. That's not what I'm getting yet. Maybe you both are. That's not my world yet. It's pretty easy to tell. Yeah, I still think it's really easy to tell. Oh, yeah. I can for sure tell that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you get those? I got one of those emails today from that same company that changes its name and changes its industry. And then it's like a $1,800 to $3,000 sponsorship fee. And I've seen every client I've ever had has gotten this email. And it's this spammy company. It's like CTO Awards. It's Women Leadership Awards. They just changed the name in the industry. They must be killing it. But it's basically a scam. And they have these online publications. But it looks real. Every client I've ever had is like, oh, this is. let's do this. Let's do this. So they are getting clever, some of them. I know. Years ago, my colleague, Chris Rapp, and I had a call with an organization. And we walked out of our little office in Durango, Colorado to go have lunch. And Chris said to me, you know, we just have to decide if we want to make money or be ethical. Because it's really hard to make money and compete with people like that. Oh, so you, you chose to uh, make money. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> this isn't going to be on the podcast, is it? <laughs> No, he chose not to like slip past the secretary by being like, hey, I'm friends with Katie. No, he chose not that route from the... Oh, right. The slimy route. Yeah. Yeah. yeah not the, the slimy yeah. secretary route. <laughs> yeah. I love those accounts as well. Those were pretty amusing. Uh, people who, who know you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yes. But they don't know her. Yeah, yeah, I know them not at all. They like Googled my name and <laughs> succeeded. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So he won't answer us. Ethical or make money? Uh, trying to straddle the line to be able to make enough money to be financially sustainable without losing our ethical North Star. I'll tell you a quick story. Year one of DLAC, we were actually holding a meeting of a bunch of our digital learning collaborative members and some people wandered in who didn't know that it was a private meeting. It was happening right at the start of DLAC. And it was actually really awkward for me. It's like, 
it's really awkward to kick people out. <laughs> but and it was a pretty big room. So I, you know, I figured either they're going to listen and get something out of it, or they're going to realize they're in the wrong place, whatever. And they didn't leave. They listened. And I went up to them after so this chatting. And it turned out they were not the right fit for DLAC at all. And I felt terrible about it. And I felt like I didn't feel like I said to them, was there something that on the DLAC website or that we emailed you that made you think this was the right fit? And it was the most interesting turnaround at that point because they then wanted to convince me that DLAC was a fit for them. <laughs> and it made sense for them to be there. <laughs> that is interesting. Okay, I'm just dying to ask you. So one of our next ventures may be to create a conference. Tell us, John, how difficult, I imagine it's very, but tell us about launching a conference from Soup to Nuts like that sounds like a huge undertaking. Tell me about it. How long do you have? How long of an answer do you want? <laughs> <laughs> Just, it was very difficult, I imagine. There's a few aspects that come into play. First of all, yes, it was very difficult. It was the second most difficult thing that I've ever done professionally. The first was working on fishing boats in the Bering Sea and storms with 30-foot waves where I was terrified I was going to die, which had the advantage of lasting a short amount of time, whereas the run-up to DLAC lasted about six months. So it never hit the peak of absolute terror, but yeah. it was a long time. The advantages that we had are we were able to bring in people who knew how to run conferences. And so there were a couple of us who don't know how to run conferences. Mm -hmm. And then there were a bunch of people who do know how to run conferences and had been involved in conferences in our space as well. And so I think that some of the best things that happen at DLAC come from the combination of people who know what they're doing. And people who didn't know what they were doing, who would ask the questions of, why don't we do it this way instead of that way? Why are we doing it that way? So for instance, it was pretty rare in education conferences trying to reach any level of scale, which I'll call, you know, the, in 2022, we had 1,100 people on site. So whatever you consider scale, it's not like 50 people or 100 people. It was pretty rare to have a conference that was running... 15-minute sessions as the base session, right? And enforcing five minutes of discussion after that and doing all these sessions, which we call table talks that are literally conversations around a table and doing all these different things. You go to most other education conferences and they're 60-minute lectures, right? Where people will tell you how bad a 60-minute lecture is for students, except that's what they persist in. And it was a variety of elements, but one of them was... Some of us who are newer saying, well, why? Why do you have to do it that way? And pushing that with the people who are experienced enough to say, okay, you, you can do X, but not Y. X sounds great and we can pull it off. That other thing, no, that's a terrible idea. Are you an education leader, the leader of an ed tech company, or a member of an organization supporting education? We continue to hear from leaders like you who have a story to tell, a message to share, or an important initiative that needs greater awareness. Three years ago, that's exactly what we heard from Doug Roberts, the CEO of the Institute for Education Innovation, when he approached SWPR Group. This led to the launch of a groundbreaking new award that was unlike any other in EdTech. The Soup's Choice Awards, judged exclusively by K-12 superintendents, set IEI on a path to market dominance increasing vendor partners and superintendent members by more than 30% year over year. Jamie Candy, the CEO of Edmentum, shared with SWPR Group the EdTech company's desire to tell district success stories and to elevate the leaders behind their organization in a more thoughtful and strategic way. 
throughout the past two years, SWPR Group has established consistent and regular media coverage, authored compelling op-eds, and secured interviews highlighting success stories while also inserting momentum into timely topics like AI with national reporters. At SWPR Group, we provide public relations, communication strategies, and thought leadership support for today's change makers and the brands they champion. We work together with our clients to bring their mission to life by consistently delivering high quality content, creative communication strategies, and transformational results. What story do you want to tell? Reach out to us using the link in the show notes or visit our website at swpr-group.com. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. No, and I imagine there's so much that goes into it and it's tons of work, but has it been rewarding? Oh, it's been incredibly rewarding. But both DLAC and the collaborative, we have an incredible team. And so we've got our core team, then we've got our consultants who are working on these projects as well. But then we have all the people who show up and all the people who are collaborative members. And a lot of them really feel a sense of buy-in and ownership. And I truly believe that we and they have created this platform, this network, this community, where some of the most interesting thinking in our space is happening. And it's happening at scale because now it's 1,100 people in Atlanta a few months ago and another 500 online all having these conversations and they're bought in. It's amazing to me how bought in they are. So DLAC runs Monday to Wednesday. We end midday on Wednesday and we do a little gathering Wednesday evening, just of some key people. And some of them are just people. It starts small. It gets a little larger. It's still not large. Hey, Katie wants an 20. invite. <laughs> I was just thinking that we're key people. I mean, just throwing it out there. I mean, well, I was yes. wondering why I haven't been invited yet. That's what I was wondering when you said that. Because Allison Powell is in charge of the invitations. Oh, just kidding. Here's the thing. This group is so... At this point, we've had the conference basically for three days. So here it is, nine o'clock on Wednesday, and people are still talking about the same stuff. They're jazzed about it. And they're talking about, okay, what do we do next year? How do we make this better? And I'm not talking about our staff. They were there. We were there. But it's other people like, how do we make this better? How do we grow it? How do we make it a year-round thing? And it's incredibly energizing. I think it's pretty cool how you have this super engaged program committee too. I think that's pretty rare at a conference for all these volunteers just to be so engaged and just wanting to participate in some way. Totally agree. It goes back to, we know the value of the people on the program committee and we've had other advisors, some in formal roles, some in informal roles, and they've been incredibly valuable. Part of the approach we've always taken with the conference, you may have noticed, we don't pay $25,000 to have a keynote speaker show up and tell everybody what they're supposed to think. All of our opening speakers have been practitioners telling their stories. Zero of them, and we've had multiple. So even though it's been four years, we've had much more than four. None of them are professional speakers. They're telling their stories. and. That to us is a key element. And by the way, that might change over time. You know, I'm not saying that's always going to be the case, but I so firmly believe that there is so much expertise within DLAC attendees. And I also so firmly 
believe that that's the expertise that needs to be raised up. Have either of you, by chance, ever been? There's this place on the campus of Stanford University. I think it's set up like a mini UN. It might be at the Hoover Institute. I don't know. They like this big round theater kind of thing. And you know, can you picture the UN, like the general assembly? Anyway, point of this is I was there with somebody else and there were a lot of people, you know, talking policy, blah, 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 blah. This is blah, 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 what we should do. Blah, blah, blah. And I leaned over to this woman, also very, very smart experience. And I said to her, I don't think any of these people have been in a school in 10 years. And I live in fear of being the person who looks so out of touch. I haven't been in a school and I haven't run a program. I, I wasn't ever a mainstream classroom teacher. And so that to me, it causes this really deep-seated fear that I'm going to, in some public way, make comments that people are going to say, he's so out of touch. And the way I solve that is by making as few public comments as possible. <laughs> and instead, having us be the platform for other people. Others, to be peer-to-peer. Um, yeah, that's peer-to-peer. brilliant. Yeah. I love that. I think there's a huge trend of that, though. Like when we're hosting things too, obviously way smaller scale than what you're talking. But the whole model of like having a person talk at them workshop all day long, like that's almost non-existent. It's like, let's leverage the expertise in the room. We might have someone driving the conversation or someone like plant the seed. But then I love that you said that. And I did notice that. I'd be like, it's so true. Like best practices that we tell teachers to not do with kids, we do to the adults. And if you're like me, I can't sit that long. I mean, the students can't sit that long. I can't sit that long. Like I've got to be engaged in conversation. So I love that you do that. I love it. Yeah. Well, we try to give people attendees choices the the same way I think students should have some choices. Sarah, back to your question about the conference. A couple of observations that probably wouldn't land on your podcast. (laughs) I can tell you when you initially look at a budget, it's kind of like, how can this not make money? And the answer is, because there's always a lot more costs and everything will be more expensive than you think. No matter how good your people are, it still comes in way, way higher. And there's a whole lot of elements about that. And so there's this really key element of logistics and cost containment that are so important. And I do those things terribly. And so if you want to have a financially sustainable conference, you have to have people who are taking that stuff really, really seriously. Are you able to make a profit on the conference? We have not made a profit yet when you consider, when you fully account for staff time. We'll get there. We're on the path. I mean, keep in mind, we're four years in and two of those years have been significantly COVID impacted, which had all sorts of ramifications for us. It's not just being a drag on attendance. It's also having to shift dates and things like that. So the growth has been really great in some ways. It's not been where we would like it to be in some other ways. Not that we want to be huge, but we've certainly been hindered by the pandemic, at least to some extent. Yeah, I think most in-person conferences have been, you know, everyone only wants to attend so many virtual conferences now. That's for sure. Okay, so I feel like we're over time. So any final questions, thoughts, Katie? We have so many thoughts and questions, I'm sure still, but... I'm way okay with this, but we didn't talk about the like, how do districts work with their partners? But I just wanted to reemphasize that. But that's okay. That's okay. Because this conversation was great, John. Like, I really hope that folks hear about what you're doing. And I love what you're doing. Well, actually, really quick before we go, what's next for Evergreen Education Group, the DLC? What's next for you guys? Any big plans on the horizon? Can I treat this like a politician? 
and answer the question Katie didn't want to ask instead of the question you did ask. And then if you want to answer the question you just asked, because I love the question about district leaders working more collaboratively with partners, because one of the things that we see quite a bit is program leaders, in my experience, don't tend to spend as much time being incredibly clear about their goals as they should be. And when I say goals, I mean specific and measurable and actionable and all those pieces. And then what happens is that the vendor is left having to at least somewhat interpret what the district program is looking for. Whereas if the district people take the time to be really, really clear, and by the way, this is really hard. We spent a bunch of years, this is an earlier iteration, the organization, but we spent a bunch of years working with districts that were setting up their online and hybrid pro- programs. And invariably, they underestimated how long it was going to take for them to work with us just to identify what they wanted to do. There were zero exceptions to that because there's so many people that have to get involved. And if you don't spend enough time up front, then what's going to happen is you're going to realize you missed something or somebody who needed to weigh in, didn't get a chance to weigh in, all those elements. And then the other part of that too is that educators tend to be so collaborative by nature that it's always the and. And there's the tyranny of and because when you're in the planning room, it's easy to say, oh yeah, and we'll do that, and we'll do that, and we'll do that. But then the reality of time and resource constraints hit. And now you're finding yourself having to choose between what you thought was going to be completely additive. And so it's not actually in the strategic plan anymore because you said you're going to do all those things, but now reality hits and you have to choose two of those seven things. And so now you're back to, okay, now we got to make this decision. And so to me, the thing that districts can do better is to be really, really clear. Here are the things we're trying to do. Here's how we're going to measure success. Here's the time frame that we're thinking about, all those pieces. And then the other thing that I would do is, and we're a tiny organization, we're not a public organization, so we don't have to go through all these hoops. But I just like to encourage people, don't submit if you're not a fit. And you know, to however every district can say that, like show us that you're actually the one that does what we're looking for because we're telling you exactly what we want. Yes. I love that. <laughs> okay, Sarah, what was the question you wanted to ask me? If you have anything exciting coming up, Anything you want to share that we should watch for? New reports? Other than DLAC, our submissions are still open, right? For 24 more hours or maybe 29 or so. I don't oh, know. Never mind. I don't know exactly what time When this airs, you're out of luck. Sorry. Next year. There's always next year. <laughs> There's always next year. The thing that we are most excited about now is going back several years, we actually launched the Digital Learning Collaborative, the membership group about the same time that we started planning for DLAC. But then DLAC, because it was a thing and it had a deadline because we said, hey, we're running a conference. It's going to be in Austin. It's going to be in April. It's like, oh, now you got to go do it, right? And so the collaborative was always the thing that fell behind. We're now at the point where we've invested considerable time and resources. We're about to roll out a new platform. We're going to be rolling out a content library, wrapping in a lot of DLAC videos and the webinars that we've been doing. Cool. We are truly at the point within the next couple of months where we'll be realizing the vision that we've had that's it's taken us a while to get here but that vision being look DLAC is the thing that happens on site and online real time for three days a year and the collaborative encompasses those same conversations 
for the rest of the year. And that's been happening. We've had incredible webinars. We've had virtual happy hours. We've had all these discussions, but it's going to the next level. And we're excited about that because what we're seeing is the excitement in our members and the number of people who are signing up or joining these sessions, the discussions that we're having in the webinars and other real-time events is, is just great. I think a lot more people are primed for this kind of stuff now post-pandemic as well. It's a lot more common to be holding Zoom meetings and that sort of thing. So the idea of, hey, I could either be in the face-to-face meeting or in the Zoom meeting. And in the past, that, that was maybe a weird dichotomy. I don't think it is anymore. And people are much more comfortable with those ideas. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, John, this is actually your second time on Build Momentum. So thanks for coming back. Appreciate it. Edit well. Make me sound good. <laughs> you will. Fun to see you. Yeah. See you in a few months. Yeah. That sounds great. Thanks for having me on. If you're looking for more of this thought leadership goodness for your organization, you're in the right place. Visit us at swpr-group.com to learn more about how we work with education organizations and their leaders, superintendents, and influencers to increase your impact. Again, that's swpr-group.com. Thanks for tuning in today, and we will see you next time on Build Momentum.